I was uh, in seventh grade one time, and uh, her name was Leslie Kinsman. And she was from Archibald, Ohio. I grew up in a small, um, kind of regionally based church denomination called the Evangelical Mennonite Church, which I don't really know what that means. Sounds like an oxymoron. Um, But anyways, there's like 10 churches and we had this camp that we would go to every summer called Miracle Camp. That's where miracles happened, I guess. And um, I met Leslie there and um, she was very cute. And uh, I liked her very much, and she didn't like me very much, which is the way it usually goes, isn't it? And, um, but in the summertime, all of these churches would descend with their youth groups on my hometown of Upland, Indiana, Taylor University, for like this giant conference. And um, we would do Bible quiz competitions, you know, good Christian things. And um, Leslie was coming, and anytime a large group of people from, I grew up in a town of 2,000 people, uh, descend on your hometown, especially when it's girls that you think are cute, that's awesome, because in 2,000-person town in the middle of nowhere, Indiana, in the summer, life is, in fact, boring. And um, so she was coming to town, and I knew this, and I was on the quiz team, and we had uh, jerseys. Uh, Mine said Lil, Lil D on the back. L-I-L with a little, little, whatever that thing is, umlaut or whatever it is. And um, so I'm going to get where I'm driving right now, and it has to do with driving. Uh, Travis Adams was one of my good friends, and uh, he had gotten a moped, which in seventh grade, if you can't drive, a moped is like getting a giant brick of gold um, from your parents, and uh, it, it was the epitome of cool. I know it's not as cool at my age to own a moped now, but then it was everything. And I remember Travis's dad saying very specifically to us, this is Travis's moped, only Travis drives it. Are you clear about this? Yes, I'm clear. Travis, are you clear? Yes, he's clear. Uh, my parents uh, reinforced the idea. They were great at reinforcing things. And um, But anyways... The way the story ends um, <laughs> is I know where Leslie's going to be along this uh, sidewalk uh, close to where we were all gathering. And I somehow, with my charm, maybe uh, convinced my friend Travis, I, w- I want to drive the moped. You get on back. And so uh, there's this S-turn <laughs> close to this building. I know this is taking way too long, but... Um, I'm driving through this S-turn, and and there she is. I see her. She's with all her little cute quiz friends standing there on the sidewalk. And um, I literally, uh, I'm I'm taking this turn, and I might as well have been just shooting arrows, just like pew, pew. Just kind of like, yeah, here I am, little D on the moped. And... uh, what I didn't realize was is that I wasn't an experienced moped driver, and um, there was about a 12-inch concrete curb on the sidewalk in front of me. I was going about 25 miles an hour. And as I was gazing deeply into uh, Leslie's eyes, I ran this moped into this curb at 25 miles an hour. What happened was is Travis, who was on back, um, ended up looking like the Lord of the Rings on a catapult. Uh, I threw him about 40 feet, luckily, into some grass on a knoll 
next to the building that we were supposedly going into. Uh, me, on the other hand, as a husky young seventh grader, didn't quite make it through the handlebars, and uh, which, by the way, we're now sharing space not only with me, but the front wheel that I folded all the way up and through them. Uh, I proceeded to do uh, the 20-yard the Pete Rose slide onto grainy concrete and basically donate all of the flesh from my arms and my chin to Taylor University's uh, sidewalk development program. I stand up. Leslie's like 20 yards away from me. I stand up and I'm like just oozing from everywhere. I'm standing there and I'm like, hey. I spent the rest of the week uh, mummified uh, from the arm up, unable to stand up uh, to answer my quiz questions because I was in so much pain with a scab beard, uh, a mixture of scab, band-aid, and um, seepage, whatever it is, uh, wondering why Leslie didn't want to talk to me. All right. I tell you that story. Um, to kind of get our minds moving in a direction this morning. And I really didn't have to go back that far. It's just a funny story. Um, but I believe that it's true about all of us. And I think Paul talks about it here in this chapter in 1 Corinthians. And it's this. It has to do with what we consider to be wisdom in our lives. Because what my actions showed in that moment was is. I know what Travis's father said. I know what my father said. I know that they said it because they wanted me to obey it. And I know that they said it because they're older and wiser than I. That's great, Dad. But I know what's best for my life. Ultimately, I'm sitting on the throne of my own heart in that moment saying, I know what's wise and I'm going to act on what I know. Whatever sits on that place has power in our lives. Whatever we're listening closest to. I was listening closest to my own heart. I was listening closest to what I thought Leslie Kinsman could offer me. Last week, Randy began a series in 1 Corinthians. Joel talked about this. And much of the reason we've chosen this book is we believe it's going to help us journey deeper into the questions that we started unpacking in January, uh, those four questions that we asked at the beginning of the year. And the struggles that we see happening in the Corinthian church are not unlike what we see happening in the city of Nashville. Um, Probably we would see it if we were observing any place humanity is occurring. And Randy took us into an initial look last week at one of the main issues that was plaguing the Corinthian church. And it was this, is that they were struggling with this propensity to move a man, a specific person, either Paul or Apollos or Peter, you guys remember this, to the center of their lives. I'm following this guy. I'm following that guy. And what Paul was saying is is this, uh, the effects of putting someone, any human being at the center of your life is is a deadly thing. It's a dangerous thing. And I think what he's doing this week, and we're going to look at it here in a second, in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 2, 5, um, is, is he's going on to develop what the danger actually is when you put a man at the center. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And here's what I want you to consider just conceptually before we get into this. We don't just put those people, Leslie Kinsman, I don't just put her at the center of my life. I put what she stands for 
at the center of my life. The message that she speaks. I put the message that this man speaks at the center. See, people were gathering in Corinth. They weren't just gathering to look at these guys. These guys wouldn't just stand up and stand there and be like, what do you think? They were teachers, eloquent speakers, trying to win people over. They would listen to these folks, the message that they had. They went there to be engaged and persuaded towards their viewpoint, their stance on life, what's true. Ultimately, the people would gather to determine who they were going to believe. And ultimately, what they said, what they spoke, that was going to be wisdom for their lives. That puts the person who's there listening really in the place of a critic. I am going to determine what is wisdom for my life. C.S. Lewis writes about this concept in the screw tape letters. And he says this, he says, Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or a connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where God wants him to be a pupil. Sitting in the seat as a critic, I know what's best for my life, rather than sitting as a pupil saying, Lord, reveal wisdom to me. The things at the center of our lives speak, and we're listening. I learned this really early. I told you a story just a second ago, but I learned this through observation. I could tell you another story of when I was five, but I'm going to tell you what I learned as a very, very young child. This didn't get said to me, but I saw it. I saw it in the life of my family. I saw it in the life of the community that I lived in. That being the smartest, that being the prettiest, being the best at anything, or maybe the best at everything, like, that's not even okay to just be good at one thing in our culture anymore. You gotta be great at everything. I hate you, Justin Timberlake. <laughs> I hate him because I wanna be him. Let's be honest, people. Being the prettiest, being the best at anything, or maybe everything, that is what is wise to do. That is what will get you celebrated. That is what will get you affirmed. That is what will give you meaning. All of which are words to describe one thing. That is what will get you love. And that's what will give you an experience of power in your life. If you have those things, you have the power to get what you most deeply desire. The power to control one thing. The one thing that you and I are after every single minute of every single day of our lives. And scripture tells us it's the root of all of our desire, all of our longing, and all of our pursuit. Love. One thing. If you're here a handful of weeks ago, I read this proverb, Proverbs 19.22. says this, what a person desires is unfailing love, better to be poor than a liar. Better to not have all the things we're running after than to lie about the fact that the one thing you and I want more than anything else is unfailing eternal love. 
So, we're starting from here, kind of pushing off. What determines wisdom in your life? What has power in your life? I believe it is whatever you believe will satisfy the desire of your heart for love. That is the thing that you call wisdom. That is the thing that ultimately has power in your life. So let's read 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 2, 5. Here we go. For the message, or the word of the cross, depending on the translation you're reading, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of his age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, the weakness of God stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the things and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let no one who boasts boast in the Lord or let the one who boasts, sorry, boast in the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with much great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Well, the first thing we see happening here, and I just read a huge chunk of scripture. We're going to look at just a couple sentences. This is like an atomic bomb. <laughs> I really felt pretty humbled, to be honest, guys. Um, this is like so simple um, that I could literally say a sentence and say, we're done. And part of me really wants to do that. <laughs> um, for us to understand the truth of this is we're so dependent on God. So dependent on the Holy Spirit. So in need of grace to understand the, the magnitude of what Paul has just kind of unearthed here. But the first thing we see here is in verse 18 through 25, Paul is setting up an apparent, and I say an apparent, comparison. And we love this, don't we? 
we're used to this. Next tag, you guys familiar with this? You type in a product and then they tell you comparison shopping. Most of our lives are lived doing this. We're doing it all the time. You've done it all morning as you've come in here and looked at everyone in this room. Constant comparison, sizing things up, place value on these things, rate stuff. We love the internet because it does it for us. But I think Paul is saying something entirely different here. And you see it in the tone where he says there, where is the wise? Where is the teacher of law? Where is the philosopher of this age? You hear the, the satirical tone to it? He's saying that there is no comparison. I'm not, comparis I'm not comparing the message of the cross to the wisdom of this world. I'm saying there's no comparison. It's not real. When you and I stack these things side by side and act as critics, we're trying to make a choice that's choosing between filet mignon and my dogs in the yard. It's not real. You're living under an illusion. That's what Paul's saying here. The apparent comparison of the wisdom of the world or, and hear this, the message of the cross, the word of the cross, not the fact of the cross, which we'll get to in a second, the word that it speaks. Satan would love for you and I to see this comparison of two similar things, of equal or close to equal value. But Paul is saying these things aren't similar. It's like trying to push two magnets together. You ever done that? When they're flipped around, you just, you can get them close and they're like, pew, pew other direction. C.S. Lewis says it like this, now that I'm sure I've thoroughly offended everybody by talking about my dog. Ugh. Lewis says this, it's hardly complimentary to God that we should choose him as an alternative to hell. <laughs> Yet, even this, he accepts. God accepts. The creature, us, the creature's illusion of self-sufficiency must, for the creature's sake, be shattered. And by trouble, so pain, suffering, or the fear of trouble on earth, so the possibility of it, or by the crude fear of eternal flames, God shatters it, unmindful of his glories diminishing. He's not thinking about the fact that he's being so humble in the moment. I call this divine humility because it's a poor thing to strike our colors to God when the ship is going down underneath us. I'm gonna pledge allegiance when all else is falling apart. To offer up our own when it's no longer worth keeping. If God were proud, he would hardly have us on such terms but he is not proud. He stoops to conquer. He would have us, even though we have shown that we prefer everything else to him and come to him because there's nothing better now to be had. The wisdom of the world versus the message of the cross.
the word of the cross. The wisdom of the world, and I won't unpack this a ton, but it's, it can be summed up very quickly. I decide what's best for me. Give me, I will decide what will give me the love that I desire and I will chase it. Which ultimately, it's, it's a step away from what Paul was talking about. It's not a man at the center, it's I'm at the center. I haven't put Apollos at the center, I've put myself at the center. Not anyone or anything else. And my life is gonna be marked by the pursuit of whatever I believe will deliver. And we could build a huge list. Money, relationships, position, knowledge, accomplishments, even some of us, service. <laughs> I'm gonna serve people so people think a certain way of me. Because that's what I need, is I need love. I mean, none of those things bad in and of themselves. But when they're at the center, bad. The wisdom of the world. The word of the cross. And I said just a second ago, it's different than the fact of the cross. I think we like to think about the fact of the cross. Like, kind of like Lewis said, choosing God over an alternative, or choosing God over hell is not, not really that complimentary. I kind of like thinking about that idea of like, yeah, I've kind of punched my ticket for heaven, but I don't really know what that means like down here today. What does the cross speak? Because he's saying something here. He's saying that this thing that we treat like this inanimate object or this historical event, it actually speaks to you and I today. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I wrote something here. I'm gonna, this is paraphrasing tons of scripture. But I'm going to read it to you after I tell you what Andrew Murray said, who's a famous theologian. He says, the better we understand the meaning, so the the, the meaning, the speaking of, the, of that death, the richer w- will be our experience of its power. So the better we understand the message of the cross, the more that we experience what Paul says later on in this passage, Christ is not just the wisdom of God, he is the power of God. Which is why I believe most of you are here. Not because you don't know enough about God, it's because you don't experience him enough. You don't sense the movement of his power in your life. I would say it's connected to this issue. We don't listen to the words of the cross, the message of the cross enough. Here's the word of the cross. And hear this, I'm, I'm re- if you are in Christ this morning, I'm reading this. This is a declaration of your life. The love you're so desiring to experience, it's yours in Christ, nowhere else. It's entirely free. There's nothing you could have done to earn it and there's nothing you can do to lose it. It's entirely on God's own decision, on his own effort, and on his own ongoing work that you will experience his love. All you have to do is receive it, respond to it. In fact, he decided to display this love for you by sacrificing himself to make it possible for a relationship between you and he to be restored so that you could experience his love for you. He did this not only when you didn't know him, but you were powerless to choose him. Scripture tells us we were his enemies 
when he went to the cross. And why? Scripture gives us one reason. Love. Man, no wonder they call it the good news. You see, Christ had every right to stay at the center. I continually move him out of the center. I don't have any right to move him out of the center. He had every right to stay at the center. But out of love for us, if you want to read something, go read Philippians 2. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, which is our main problem. That's your and my main problem. We actually consider equality with God something to be grasped. I see myself as his equal. Christ himself didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He became nothing. Took on the very nature of a servant. Became a part of his creation. Suffered death on a cross. And why? Hebrews 12 says, he, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Scorning its shame. And sat down at the right hand of the Father. We are why. We are the joy set before him to make you and I sons and daughters. He stepped out of the center, became a servant, suffered death on the cross. That's the word of the cross. Now, for me at least, and I think I can say this about us, we have a difficult time remaining in this truth even though John 15 says really clearly that that is the key to experiencing the Lord is remaining in him. And I don't think it's just because we're forgetful. I think that's just too easy to say it like that, even though I think that that's profoundly true. Forgetfulness is just a cousin to being distracted. Or even that we have this sin nature to deal with, because that's true too. Something's happened for us in spirit that yet we're waiting to taste the full reality of in our flesh. But I want you to think about this for a second, that there's actually a war going on for the words that we give our ears to. There's a battle happening. Because those words carry power, those words are the fuel that our lives are based on. I don't have time to defend this, but I'm going to tell you this, and I think this is true, and it says in the scripture that Satan cannot reclaim you if you're in Christ. He can just prevent you from walking and experiencing the truth of what's happened for you in Christ. He's just going to get you distracted enough that your life reflects nothing of the significance of what's occurred. You won't taste of the power of the truth of what's happened for you. I'm going to talk just a few minutes about a couple of these battlegrounds. These are fun to talk about. I'm not going to talk about them very long. Um, here's one of the battlegrounds. This is the message that the world gives you versus the message of the cross. You can get all the love you desire from things on earth. It's just a matter of how you go about it. Have a good plan. Execute. All the love you desire can be had here, now. That's the wisdom of the world. 2 Corinthians 5, go read it. It says that you groan inwardly as you wait expectantly 
for the redemption of your bodies. Something's happened for you in spirit that hasn't happened for you in flesh. And your life will be marked by that groaning. Go read Ecclesiastes. Solomon, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. And what did I come to? Meaningless, meaningless. There's got to be something more. What's another peddling of the world's wisdom? If it's free, it's not what you want. I mean, seriously, think about this for a second. What do you have that was free that you really value? I mean, we're skeptical of free things. Someone wants to give you something for free, you're like, what? What are you talking about? There's got to be some catch, right? Something that's free is always secretly wanting something else in return. I think it's even this complex. If it's cheap, we love it. If it's free, we don't want it. Why? Because we're entitled to things being less for us. You hear this when Americans travel to Europe and say, man, I'll never pay $5 for a gallon of gas. Yeah, you would. You just did. You're in Europe. We like it to be cheap. We even say things like, man, I'm a great bargain hunter. (laughs) Oh, okay. Because you went looking for it, it cost less. You see how much we have to push ourselves to the center of all of it? You can get all the love you desire from things on earth. It's free. If it's free, you don't really want it. The last thing is is you can experience this love without having to hurt at all. So not only you can get it here, but you can experience it without pain. If suffering is involved, it's not what you're looking for. Yet 2 Corinthians 4, 10 through 11 says, if you're in Christ this morning, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. So that the power of Christ may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be also revealed in our mortal body. So who gets to decide what is wisdom for you and for me? That's the question we're dealing with. And it's one of two things, guys. Either I decide for myself, I am at the center, or I have it revealed to me by something outside of myself. Go look, let's go back into the passage for a second. Look at where he talks about in verse 22, the Jews and the Greeks. Because this is another one of these apparent comparisons that he's doing. But he's really saying that the Jews and the Greeks, they're two sides of the same coin. David Pryor in his commentary says this about Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. This is what David Pryor in his commentary says. He says, Paul saw two fundamental ways in which the unbelieving world attempted to construct a way to God. Jews wanted wanted God to meet all their criteria by providing irrefutable and tangible proof upon which they could base their convictions. Show me a sign. 
Prove to me who you are. Show me something that's irrefutable and tangible, and then I'll pledge my allegiance. He goes on to say of the Greeks that they preferred to speculate their way to God through reasoning and argument. So intellect, reasoning, eloquent speaking, what do I think about what you're saying? That was how they made their way to God. To Paul, therefore, the wisdom of the world, both Jewish and Greek, seemed to clearly arise out of man's rebellion against God. His refusal to bow a knee and his determination to make God fit his own ideas and his own desires. The word of the cross, it speaks, guys. The cross speaks to you and me today. It speaks the wisdom that God isn't confused about anything, that we are the ones who are confused, that the only way that relationship could have been restored was entirely on him. I need to think for a second. Hold on. Galatians 4, 9 talks about our continual slide into this illusion. It says, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? To this worldly wisdom. This is the word of the cross to you and me this morning. The unreasonable, the unfathomable, the illogical, the self-sacrificial, the unfully appreciated or even understood love of God displayed in his son's death for you and I. That's the word of the cross. And this is the main point. If you don't take away anything, take away this. God calls that wisdom. The word, the message of the cross, he says that is the wisdom for your life if you are in Christ this morning. And it's not the wisdom of the world. It's foolishness to the world. The world does not understand it. The world and its values are opposed to everything that the cross stands for. And that has been that case since Genesis. Since the fall of mankind. And the second thing I'd like for you to hear, and then I'm going to kind of give you a couple things I think that you can, that Paul gives us here that we can do with this maybe, is, is if you know the truth that I just said, and yet you're experiencing very little effect or power in your life as a result of the truth, it probably has to do with the fact that you rarely listen to the message of the Christ, or message of the cross. You think about the cross in a factual sense, but you don't create the space for the cross to speak into your life. That's why in Deuteronomy 6, it says, tie it to your hands, write it on the door frames of your homes, tell it to your children, talk about it when you lie and when you get up and when you're walking along the road. What is he saying? He's saying 
this is speaking all the time and we need to be speaking and setting our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds in this direction. I think it's even what Jesus is getting at when he says to his disciples, whoever in Luke 9, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross daily and follow me. We always, that kind of gets compartmentalized and Jesus died for you, now get busy dying for other people. It, it ain't that. He's saying for you to take up your cross, do you understand the significance of what that means? It means you would have to take up the, the full reality of what Christ has done for us. You and I can't pick up crosses. He picks up crosses. So you pick up the truth of what the cross speaks into your life. We forget it all the time. It's like canceling a magazine subscription. You ever done this and you still get the magazine for a while? I say, like I've bought into this. Like I've canceled my subscription to the world's wisdom. But the world keeps sending me magazines. (laughs) And so when I'm sitting in my home, eventually I pick up that magazine and start to read it and it begins to affect and speak because it's speaking too. So what would this look like in our lives? How do you and I begin to see the message of the cross, the wisdom and the power of God in Christ Jesus that Paul's talking about here? And I think Paul gives us a couple things right here in the narrative from his own experience, and it's this. If you look... In verse 26, it's a very simple sentence, and he goes on to describe more of it. But he says this, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Think of what you were when you were called. David talks about this in the Psalms. Return or restore me to the joy of my salvation. Stop believing your own press. When you came to Christ, if you had a moment where you understood Jesus for the first time, it was a moment of of complete brokenness, of true humility, of knowing that everything had been done for you. And he's saying, think about this. Think about it. Let it be the narrative of of your life. Jesus has done everything for you. Think about that. Set your minds on it. Fix your eyes on it. Jesus is saying, you still put on your pants one leg at a time. No one got that. You're a human being. There is no hierarchy in this room. Think of what you were when you were called. Think about it. That brings us into the message of the cross. We hear the words of the cross. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says this, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you did not? You have nothing that wasn't given to you. Man, that goes against everything the world tells you. I'm self-man, self-made man, self-sufficient. I don't need anybody. In fact, that's the goal of life. Not need anything, right? So think of what you were. The second thing, and it's just the fact of the letter, the fact that he's writing a letter to Corinth. 
Paul is fighting for the truth of lives and other people with this letter. This letter is a living declaration of what it looks like to step into the conversations where you see the wisdom of this world becoming the power of people's lives. Step in to the conversation. In your own life, in the lives of your friends, bring the truth of what you were when you were called into that place. This is what Paul is doing. He's taking them to the word of the cross. And then the third thing is this. This is a powerful statement. I wish I could spend more time on it. It's in chapter two, verse two, and he says, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. He says this in two, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I determined, I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You seen Inception? Yes? No? You know, remember the totem, the little thing he would spin in order to make sure he knew if he was in reality or in a dream? The cross. That's your totem. If you're in Christ, that is the thing that tells you what reality is. Spin it all the time. Because you and I, we're living in dreams all the time. The gospel, the message of the cross, it is our anchor for reality. When Paul's saying, I resolve to know nothing, he's saying, everything I'm experiencing, me preaching, Paul, Paul, all these things, great, but what I know is this. Everything I'm experiencing, it's getting poured through that lens. This is what I know. I was nothing when Jesus came for me. I did nothing to deserve this. I cannot lose this. He loves me, he loves me, he loves me, he loves me. What's at the center of your wisdom? One of two things. The wisdom of the world or the word of the cross. Take up the word of the cross daily in Midtown. Think of what you were when you were called. Speak that truth to one another all the time. Resolve your minds to know nothing else. He will give you the grace to do so. Remain in his love for you. Because apart from it, you can do nothing of value. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. He started it, he will finish it. Know that he has set you free from sin and from your bondage to it. You are not enslaved anymore. Know that there is nothing you can do to separate yourself from his love. Know that he has given you his Holy Spirit as a deposit and a guarantee of what is to come. So it's okay to groan because something's coming. Know that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. Know that he did all of this because he loves you. Let's pray.
Lord, we just, we do, we just pause and just confess, Lord, um, I am, I'm reading all the magazines of a subscription that I canceled. <laughs> that I've so often committed and, and imbibed the wisdom of the world that, that you oftentimes, Lord, and, the, and the, the truth of the cross is just this kind of watered down, diluted historical fact rather than the place and the power from which um, I move and groove and find life. So Jesus, we just, we thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you um, that you've done everything for us. Lord, I pray that you would explode that reality in our hearts and minds right now. That what is foolishness to the world would become the very thing that we cling to. We know we don't have the power to do this, Lord, only by your Spirit's power. Can we put down the wisdom of the world and pick up the message of the cross? Give us that grace in your name, amen.